Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program, more than 600 episodes and counting, are all available for free. It's a free show. Your support makes a difference. If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the program. This is the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles. It is nice to meet you. It is nice to meet you. It's nice to be with you. It's nice to meet you. Uh, Megan Fernandez is my guest today. She's a poet. She has a collection out called Good Boys. It's on Tin House Books. It's nice to meet you, by the way. And it was nice to meet Megan Fernandez. She came over uh, just this past week, actually and uh, sat down with me and we talked her poetry collection is beautiful again it's called good boys you're going to hear from uh, megan fernandez momentarily i had her read a poem as i have been doing with poets uh, on the program recently and then you're going to hear us uh, have our conversation i do have a little bit of mail a listener named alex writes uh, brad sometime in the past year i took a bunch of mushrooms put on a few of my favorite techno records and subsequently proceeded to pull out my phone and look at Twitter for several hours while I contemplated my purpose in this world, its value or subsequent lack thereof, all the little things that I fail to devote my full attention to because I just can't. All of my energy seems to be expended by my responsibilities, by working to stay alive, to maintain relationships, to plan for the future, etc. I think you get it. Anyway, somewhere in the midst of uh, this swirling cluster of thoughts, I ended up falling into an other people Twitter wormhole, upon which I spent an undetermined amount of time reading the tweets you had written over the last several weeks. And now that you are no longer participating, I wanted to take the time to thank you for your brilliant insights and observations during your time on the platform. They always gave me a chuckle or inspired me to think about something differently when I found myself bored and listless. Signed, Alex.
Thank you, Alex. There's a lot to unpack here, I feel like. First of all, I'm interested in the fact that you took a bunch of mushrooms and were uh, listening to techno. And then uh, that you pulled out your phone and you were on Twitter. I don't know. I can't think of anything maybe worse than reading my Twitter while tripping. But of course, I'm not on Twitter anymore. But I do have for the show... (laughs) I keep uh, talking about this. This has been the subject of like the last three monologues. I quit Twitter. Uh, The show continues to have a presence on Twitter at other PPL is the handle. Uh, Same as always. But the difference is that now uh, my social media director, Joseph Grantham runs the account. I have nothing to do with it. I also want to address this idea of uh, evaluating one's purpose in the world one's value or subsequent lack thereof and how, uh, let me see if I can reread this letter, how, you know, you can fail to devote your full attention to stuff that you want to devote it to, but you can't because all your energy gets sucked up by responsibilities, work, relationships, planning, etc. I think a lot of us feel this. Maybe everybody feels this if you live long enough. What the hell are we doing here? I'm also amused and interested in this notion of uh, escaping what can feel like a trap, this trap of, of feeling like you have to accomplish something. I see this in particular among people in media, whether it's uh, you know media and the arts, whether it's books or movies or music or journalism or whatever it is. Why do you got to get some big thing done and get all this attention? Fuck that. Just live a small life. Need less. I'm talking to myself here. Do you know what I'm saying? There are a lot of people out there who live happier lives than most of us. And they have no plan at all to achieve anything. (laughs) Hang on. Twiggy. Quiet. It's my dog. She's growling. No. I also like this idea of uh, the other people Twitter wormhole. I take issue with the notion that I ever offered brilliant insights on Twitter during my time on the platform. I think that's going to be my uh, Twitter memoir. Eventually it's going to be called during my time on the platform. Anyway, uh, thank you, Alex. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you writing to me. If you're out there and you're thinking, man, I wish I could write a letter to Brad Listy. Uh, my email address is letters at other PPL.com. So before we get to the conversation with today's guest, Megan Fernandez, I want to uh, have Megan read a poem. I think that's a good idea, right? And uh, the name of this poem is Conversion, and it can be found in her new collection, Good Boys, out there now from Tin House Books. So here is Megan Fernandez reading a poem. Once again, it is called Conversion. Sam says you can't name your book Good Boys without a dog, but Sam doesn't know that I am the dog. 
I am the ultimate mutt, and I am telling him this story at the bar called College Hill Tavern, which looks like a front for some operation, where all the bar stools appear as if they were staged in under ten minutes, and the girl with the fake lashes knows I like a double gin, and I am telling Sam that I am a dog who was converted when I was seventeen, and my mother found an essay about how I was in love with a girl, and there was a Portishead reference, in case you need me to date it, and this was way before the liberation of the young and the white twins on YouTube who come out to their dad and everybody cries and transforms. When I see those kids, all I think is they never had parents who were immigrants and who sent you to a lady and told you had to solve it all in one session because this therapy was expensive. It wasn't so traumatic, rather funny. And I remember the couch, there were multiple couches, and I had to choose a spot, and I sat on the couch farthest from her, and this wasn't the first nice lady who looked at me like I was a dog. And Sam, when I said it is called good boys, what I meant was that I was a good boy, and loved good boys and good men, and still love them. But you see, I was 17 and alone, and nobody gave me anything except one book by Dickinson, and she was so neat, so precise, so human, and I wasn't. I just wasn't. I was just a dog. I wasn't even that good. So that is Megan Fernandez reading a poem called Conversion from her new collection entitled Good Boys, available now from Tin House Books. Uh, we're going to hear Megan read another poem after the interview. So at the tail end of the show, if you want to hear another poem, stick around and uh, we'll have Megan back to entertain you. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, but for now, let's just get to the conversation. It was such a joy meeting her and talking with her and uh, getting to know her a little bit. We also talk about politics. I think that's why I'm doing a Sunday episode. I want to make sure that this uh, remains timely. We're just before Super Tuesday. It sort of felt like the perfect fit. So uh, let's do it right now. This is Megan Fernandez, and her new poetry collection, One More Time, is called Good Boys. Well, I was born there and lived there for seven years. And then uh, my parents moved to Philadelphia and they took us along with them. So that was nice of them. Okay. So what, Alberta? Uh, Alberta, right outside Edmonton, Alberta. Yeah. Okay. Oilers. The Oilers. Yes. I just watched not too long ago, you know, that ESPN documentary series 30 for 30. You ever heard of this? I'm not really. Um, Sporty? I'm at, at all. Can you tell? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I don't know. I don't, you're from Edmonton though. You could be a hockey I fan. know. I do. Yeah. I know who like Wayne Gretzky is. And I did go to... 
elementary school with um, the guy who's the captain or was the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Oh, really? Dion Panuff or something. Yeah. Okay. Well, I watched this in a documentary about Wayne Gretzky and how he got traded. Oh, yeah. Which was this huge? I mean, it, it was huge. Yeah, it was like the most important thing that ever happened in, in Canada. Ed, in Canada, in all of Canada. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the way it was positioned too. But yeah. um, that was like my first real window into life in Edmonton. It's not a place that I have much of. Uh, I have no personal experience there on the ground. And then I had. Why not. would you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you recall? Oh, um, you know, actually, I think I had kind of like a lovely early years in Edmonton. It was cold, but like cold weather for a kid is kind of fun. Yeah. A lot of like making snowmen and being outside, a lot of wilderness. Um, And I think that uh, there was a pretty good Indian community around us. So we had like uh, a good community there and also family. You know, a lot of my family immigrated to that part of the Canada. It was easier to immigrate there than the United States at the time. Oh, okay. So wait, you're, are both your parents from India? Yeah, it's kind of complicated. They are um, they're third generation East African Portuguese colonized Indians who grew up under British occupation. So they're from Tanzania, actually. And they lived there for three generations, but part of an Indian diaspora. Got it. In Tanzania, but part of this Indian diaspora that was that's from Goa, which is the Portuguese colonized previously Portuguese colonized smallest province in India. Yeah. Okay. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, I'm a poet. That makes sense to me now. Like, <laughs> I was just like, wait, what is this? You know, I remember getting my cable bills in Spanish. I mean, like, I don't speak Spanish, um, but just being kind of illegible in terms of identity—that's something that I think I've always kind of struggled with. And then, like, the Canadian add that to the mix and. It was even more confusing, I think. But your roots, like the, the, your ethnic origins are India. India, yeah. Okay, yeah. you said Goa. Goa. Which is? It's the smallest province in India. It's on um, the west side of India, and uh, particularly from Panjim, which is a small city in Goa. And um, yeah, I mean, we still have family that live there. Uh, my grandparents were in Mumbai for 40 years. And then they moved to Goa. They've, they've passed now, but um, we have just family mostly in Mumbai and Goa, left in India. And then in Tanzania, in Tonga, which is a small coastal town. Have you been to these places? Yeah, I've been to India a lot. Uh, I haven't been there in a little while, but when I was growing up, we would go there you know, almost every year, every few years. And then the last time I was in uh, East Africa was in 2015. Okay, and how's that? Um, it was really important. It was a really important trip for me. It was the first time I'd been there without my parents. So that was very difficult because they speak Swahili and I do not speak great Swahili. Um, and Wait, so, what are they, and they speak Spanish too. No, that was a joke. They, we don't speak any Spanish. Oh, 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 <laughs> it's just like, Fernandez. We get cable bills like, you know, in Spanish all the time. And, and like, where does the Fernandez come from? It's Portuguese. Yeah. Fernandez is a very common Portuguese last name. With an S, right? So with a Z, it's Hispanic, right? But with an S, it's Portuguese. But the the name was there a name? Uh, was there a name change to Fernandez from something? No, it's always been Fernandez. Always Fernandez. Going back to India. Um, well, I mean, because the Portuguese <laughs> there was intermarriage, right? Um, okay. Yeah, back in the day. So De Souza, De Silva, Pereira, Fernandez. These are the common last names you'll find in Goa, India, which are all Portuguese last names. And then, like the Portuguese first names are also. I mean, the first names of all these, you know, Indian ethnically Indian people are also Portuguese, like Zelia or um, uh, uh, Evaristo. You know, so it's kind of it's always always been a little bit confusing yeah. for somebody outside to explain to them what right. it's like. Yeah. Okay, and so. You, your parents immigrate to Canada. They leave Tanzania mm-hmm. because things are bad in Tanzania. 
No. So my mom left Tanzania and went and became a flight attendant for Saudi Arabian Airlines um, after college in uh, India. She went back to India, went to college. She was actually a molecular biology major, um, but there were no jobs. And I think it was probably particularly difficult for women to get jobs in the sciences at the time. So she wanted to travel. She became a flight attendant for but, Saudi. By the way, in the uh -huh. age of coronavirus, we need flight attendants with molecular biology degrees. <laughs> oh, God. This is perfect. Is too soon for that joke? I don't know. <laughs> or maybe it's not soon enough. I'm terrified. Yeah, yeah. I have some contagion fear. But um, yeah, she had skills for uh, pandemics. Um, but uh, And then my dad went to England uh, after when he was 17. He left Africa to go to, in, uh, to England and then immigrated from, um, from England so to Canada. So it's like citizens of the world. Basically, yes. That's cool to me. It is cool. I mean, that's sort of the philosophy of diaspora, I guess. It's, you know, it means scattered, but I also think I read somewhere that, you know, where you're born, the concept of the nation is based on where you're born, but the concept of diaspora is where you die. And I kind of thought that was, um, that's a little bit how I think about the, my family's movements is, you know, sometimes going to, sadly, going to funerals in places that feel so far away from where they grew up and where they were sort of formed. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. It's like, it's cool because you get to experience all these different places and you have a certain worldliness and sense of connectivity, I would imagine. But then also it, in a lot of ways it can be harder because of that sense of dislocation, that sense of never fully belonging to a place or do you have that? A hundred percent. And also this feeling of just like consistently like feeling in authentic in every space, right? Um, you know, not being kind of feeling like American, but also because that's where I grew up, you know, predominantly, but also growing up in a household where like none of my friends, you know, could really relate unless they also were immigrants, right? Um, to the way that I grew up or to like my relationship or experiences growing up. But then going to India and also feeling not at all of that world. Right. And then, you know, going to, you know, all over. Yeah. So I think it's a consistent feeling of, um, that like, what does it mean to have a homeland that's theoretical or imaginary or kind of rootless in a way? And how do you make a space for subjectivity or, you know, I'm an academic, I use these words. Um, how do you make a space for identity? Like when everything feels, um, more horizontal than deep, if that makes sense. Do you feel like an American? Like I say this, uh, because you know, it's, it's nice for me to sometimes think like I'm a citizen of the world. I don't even believe in countries. Patriotism feels weird to me. Like I get that I'm an American. There are a lot of things I appreciate, appreciate about the privilege of growing up here. Um, there are a lot of things I don't appreciate exactly, but when I go abroad, there is something sort of like, like I can never shake the fact that I'm from here. Yeah. And I don't think I necessarily realize how deeply I'm an American until I'm not in the United States. Of course, yeah. Do you have that feeling when you go abroad? Are you like, actually, I am. This place has gotten into me. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm totally, I totally identify as an American for all the terrible things about that and all the good things about that, I guess. Um, I mean, I don't have a romanticized idea like you of, of, you know, like I think we're similar this way. I don't have any romanticized idea of like patriotism or, you know, belonging to a nation or feeling like that citizenship, um, means something aspirational, right? I'm pretty, I feel like pretty realistic, but, um, no, I feel like American culturally in terms of like, you know, the music I would listen to, 
the TV shows I would watch, the way that I talk, I think is very East Coast. My sense of humor feels very East Coast. I'm struggling out here in Southern California. <laughs> Come on. Um, but no, I feel I definitely feel like an American in that way. And I have friends who are from everywhere who are like, oh my God, you're so American sometimes. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I've obviously, uh, it's well documented on this show, but I, I, like many people, have been out of sorts uh, for the past few years you know, looking at what's going on in the United States and, you know, I don't need to ramble, um, and, you know, spell it out in detail, but one of the things that I read recently, which made me pause and made me sort of rethink my thinking is, uh, like on the one hand I say, you know, patriotism, especially when it's like jingoistic and, sure. you know, tied to like uh, foreign adventures in war or whatever. That's where it starts to give me the creeps. Um, but I read something about people who had immigrated to the United States, like first generation. And specifically they had come from countries that were failed States. Yeah. And this was before Trump. And so they were, you know, this might even have been before George W. Bush, but, you know, coming to a country where the government, you know, quasi worked right, and had some level of integrity to it. It was most deeply appreciated. I think was what this essay was trying to communicate by people who were coming from countries where the state had completely failed. Right. And I think the point was that like, you don't know how much you appreciate like a semi-functional government until it's gone. Sure. Um, so it, I don't know. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, a lot of those semi-functional governments are only semi-functional because of American imperialism and American intervention and, you know, colo uh, like years and years of, of, of colonial um, uh, uh, occupation and, and taking resources from certain um, spaces. So, yeah, I think a lot about the language that we use to think about um, nation statehood, about modernity, about what it means to be, uh, you know, I'm putting this in air quotes, like a developed, like a developed country, what it means to have a developing economy, the way that we talk about China and India and certainly parts of Africa now. And yeah, I'm very um, suspect of the language of uh, what works, right? And what fails, because I think you know, we're really failing <laughs> and we've been failing in a lot of ways, um, in income inequality, obviously here, um, in, in, in terms of, uh, the criminal justice system, in terms of race, we've been failing for so long. So yeah, what it means to be semi-functional as like a people or as like a government or as a population, I think that that, uh, that language is sort of, a language that is really only working for a pretty small population, right? You know, hence the situation that we're in right now. Um, well, I the other day, like sometimes I'll read about climate change. I can only do it in fits and starts because it's so scary and depressing. Of course, yeah. I read for like I got into like a internet hole yeah. and I just read for like you know a couple of hours. Yeah. I went inside and literally poured myself like a large glass of vodka. Yeah. I was so, I was so shaken by what I read. Sure. Where's that vodka by the way? Yeah, it's all gone, <laughs> but that's not like necessarily, that's not necessarily like me. I don't typically like have a cocktail. I mean, I'm not like get upset and have a cocktail person, but like yeah. it struck me as like a unique situation. And I guess like maybe proportionate, you know, like, Oh yeah. Um, and then, uh, last night, I don't usually remember my dreams. I had a vivid dream that I was dying and basically like it wasn't even, it was like that I was sick and then I was going to be euthanized. 
Wow. And I woke up crying. Wow. Not like me at all. Really? Yeah. You're not a crier in the morning. Not, no. <laughs> um, but I was just like, whoa, like I was just such a heavy dream. Yeah. And yeah. I was trying to be like in the dream, I was trying to sort of be like a stoic dad. Sure. But it was like old yeller, you know, like I was like, but except I was old yeller. Do you remember your dreams? No. Okay. Not typically. Yeah. Or if I do, it's very fleeting and then gone. Is the symbolism of your dreams like quite cinematic or is it pretty, usually pretty... I, I, narrative and I think it's, I think it might be tied to like the deep sense of dread and sadness that I felt mm. for my own kids after reading about climate change, yes. like what we're doing. And then, and you know, we talked about this before we came on. I'm going to try not to, to timestamp this conversation with, um, specific political stuff just because by the time it goes live, it could all be, of course. Yeah. Like we could all be dead of coronavirus. Sure. Sure. Right. Uh, but one of the things that I have witnessed online and in conversation with people, but specifically on social media, like the chatter around the election, mm. um, one component of it that I've noticed is that young people tend to be in support of Bernie. Yes. Like that he has young people. Yeah. And then there is a certain um, subset of the American political left, which cannot stand Bernie, thinks he's going to lose. Right. Um, thinks that these kids basically are delusional. I, I hear like, there's a lot of shit talking both ways, to be honest, like sure. the kids shit talk, the older people, the older people shit talk, the younger people. Everybody seems to know that Bernie can win or everybody seems to know that Bernie cannot win. Yeah. And I'm always like, motherfuckers, like, look who's in the oval office. Nobody fucking knows anything. Like I'm kind of with you there. Yeah. We all said there was no way Trump was going to be the nominee. He was yeah. the nominee. We said there's no way he's going to beat Hillary. Look where we are now. Yeah. So don't act like you know. Right. Like have some humility. Of course. And move with the uncertainty of the times. Yeah. Right. And then it's like, well, Bernie has all these pie in the sky plans and he doesn't have any like specific action plans. He'll never be able to get anything passed. It could be true. It would be incredibly politically difficult for him if elected to pass his agenda in full. I think that's a political reality that seems very likely unless he wins like a supermajority. But here's where I, the point that I'm getting at is that when I think about younger generations in particular, and when I think about young people who are in their twenties and who are saddled with college debt, um, who might be young women who would like to have a family or, or young men who would like to have a family, even with health insurance, the out-of-pocket copays in hospitals for pregnancy make things too expensive. Yeah. Childcare costs make starting a family cost prohibitive. In the meantime, you've, you're saddled with, uh, you know, what, $120,000 of college debt. That's how you enter the workforce. Uh, and then we have a climate disaster that is barreling down that requires emergency, massive, unprecedented action over the next decade, or we are fucked. Yeah. And what I want to say to anybody who poo-poos, I can't believe I just use it as a verb, but anybody, I'm also surprised, but yeah, go ahead. Anybody who, <laughs> anybody who shit talks young people for responding to the, the message that Bernie is sending out, um, listen, I don't know what to think of him. Right. I'm not advocating for him. 
I'm advocating for these kids who want a future, yeah. like get a clue. Yeah. Like maybe they are dreamers or whatever. Maybe they like, maybe they are not living in political reality, but how can you fault them? They want a fucking future. Yeah. And I just think anybody, I, I don't see the conversation centering on why young people are responding to that message. I see the conversation centering on you're stupid, you're wrong. He's, an, you know, he's bad. He's a narcissist, whatever the criticisms, criticisms might be. I think it's maybe more useful to be like, why are young people, um, why are they there? Maybe we should listen to them and maybe we should consider, um, why they are so immovable. You know, they're that core, like 30% block or whatever. So anyway, that's a long winded spiel, but I've been thinking about this a lot. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about Bernie is sort of the conversation, that has been kind of irresponsible in my in my opinion in the media about him as radical. I think a lot of countries in Europe would put like Bernie as like moderate left, you know, just left of moderate. Like he's not actually asking for anything that's crazy radical in my opinion. He's asking for things that are like available to most uh countries that would see themselves as um, leaders of, of civilization and like healthcare, right? Um, maternity leave, um, uh, dignity, just like human dignity. So I think that there's this way in which we've couched this conversation, uh, in the media nationally, really problematically as being, uh, we have to have someone who's moderate as if that's a reality. Well, where's the middle? That's what I always, I think that's kind of what you're saying. Like, I don't, th- I, what I'm, what I'm saying is that like, we, we sort of said, okay, this person is doing well by we, I mean, the media is sort of saying like what he's advocating for is radical. It's not what he's advocating for is, is just like decent human living with some dignity where you don't have to go bankrupt if you get cancer or where, you know, friends of mine who have had like some serious medical issues, but once they get kicked off their parents' health insurance, right, can't go see a doctor and then things spiral out of control or, I mean, the people who are who are advocating for a kind of moderate um, uh, option, in, in my opinion, uh, are, are just like live. Are they are living in an unreality, right? They are living in an unreality where they think that they can go back to some I don't know Clinton Obama era uh, neoliberal fantasy, which is is exactly that. That's a fantasy structure that didn't work. It didn't work, and it left so many people out, right? Well, and when it comes to climate change. In particular, well, and I think healthcare, there, you know, you can make the case for a lot of these things. People who are suffering because of the failure of policy to address their concerns don't have time for half measures. Of course. And when it comes to climate, like we don't have time for an incremental approach. Mm-hmm. It has to be radical. Yeah. And the word radical, I always like to say, it's been sort of bastardized, but the word radical, the etymology of it, the root of it means root. Like a radical approach gets at the root of the issue. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know. I want to take back the word radical. Like radical is not necessarily bad. (laughs) I don't think it's bad either. I just think that what he's asking for is common sense. Like we won't have a planet, right? So there's this idea that like what he's saying is going to be totally this, you know, insane thing. And I'm like, well, actually, what does it matter? All the critiques that you have, if there's no planet here in order to have critiques, right? It just seems like so non, uh, it it seems like something that you can't even, um, 
like, how could you say anything against it? Right. And I think we're sort of moving the conversation into a space of hysteria when I think we need to move the conversation back to, as I think you're suggesting, just something really practical, which is like, Hey, we need a planet because we're a species. And so like, in order to have a planet, we have to do these things. Right. And, and then they, the and policies they... might be radical, right. Or the, the shift might be radical, but the reason for doing it is just common sense. Right. It's about collective species survival. Um, and that part of the argument, I feel like we need to sort of bring back um, because it's so easy for that uh, to become mythologized or to be injected with a kind of hysteria um, that we're trying to shake things up. It's like, no, we're trying to survive. We're just trying to live, you know? Right. Yeah. I feel like, even though that might sound like a sidebar, I feel like those kinds of concerns are filtered throughout your collection. Yeah. I recognized a lot of myself in these poems. Uh, that's why I brought it up just yeah. because it seems like you're working through, um, some of these issues at least, or working, you know, in a space where they live. Um, can you talk about like where, like what are the central concerns of the book and, um, just give kind of like maybe like a little bit of backstory in terms of how it came together. Yeah. So the poems are mostly written from 2015 to 2018, I would say. Um, and I think that, you know, I remember reading this article by Wendy Brown, who's an academic called, um, critical theory in dark times. And it's about the history of the word crisis, which comes from, um, uh, critique, sorry, the history of the word critique, which comes from the word crisis and was used in sort of Athenian democracy to think about what is a restorative or judicial action that can help solve a crisis. So she talks a lot about what's the temporality of crisis. And I think we're sort of thinking about that right now with climate despair, climate change, where we're sort of mourning the future. And it's a weird, we're in this space of like anticipatory brace, right? Yeah. We're like waiting and that, but how can you wait in crisis, right? Those are two temporalities that are really at odds with each other, right? One, which is calm and, and long and durational. The other, which is fast and reactive and terrifying, right? But I think one of the things that happens when those comes together, she argues this, is that people have a sense of depressive anxiety, which means at the same time, same time mania and also paralysis, Right. So it means not being able to move, feeling really stuck, but at the same time, having obsessive thoughts, having anxiety, racing. What do you do with an adrenaline that is also stasis? Waking up in the middle of the night, sobbing. Exactly. Well, <laughs> because you're about to be... yourself of, you know, for you, vodka, for me, whiskey, you know, no shade, but like a little bit like that is sort of the mood of the book, which is like moving from, I think, poems of compression and tightness to poems which are really spilling over and are really about adrenaline and, and, and um, stream of consciousness. And like, it's a little bit about a, a mind in between those uh, poles, like, right. So it's kind of like a, uh, a polarizing mental uh, state. Um, and I think for me, that's sort of the mood of the book, which is to talk about nuclear anxiety and God, um, that's another thing I can't read about for very long without freaking out. Of course. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a hidden reality that in my day-to-day, -day, I think most people's day-to-day, -day, they don't consider. But there is a tinderbox of nuclear warheads living all over this planet. Yeah. And, um, it, you know. And it the would, bombs have names, which it, I just thought was so interesting. Yeah, and it would just, you know, the, the, the level of human disaster that even one of these bombs could cause the world over is terrifying. You and I should do like children's birthday parties. I think we'd be really, 
Well, That'd be really good. I, I think like as hard as it, as it is to talk about these things and ha- as uncomfortable and depressing as it is, it's so necessary mm. because it is reality Yeah, and it is staring us in the face and we have a responsibility. I feel a sense of responsibility to my kids, especially, but to all people and especially to young people whose futures lay before them. Uh, we are delivering to future generations like so selfishly a, a future that is at, at best, highly compromised. Yeah. And that bums me out. We can do better. And like, we have to uh, do something soon in a, ma- in a major way. And I worry that we're not going to do it. I think a lot of people worry. I guess it's good that we're worried because that means we might take action. But, you know. On the other hand, I kind of have poet optimism. I good. Think, right? Good. Give it to me, please. Um. No, I don't know. I'm. I'm... You know, I was telling somebody this the other day, or was I think I had written this thing about it, where I'd had a really rough night in Brooklyn, and I was taking the L train from Brooklyn to Manhattan, and I was just what would happen? Well, let's not go into that. That'll take come on. <laughs> that'll take a long time. But I was like ugly crying on the subway. Okay. You know, like in New York, everybody kind of gives you your privacy to have a breakdown in public space because there's no privacy in New York. Everybody right. has 12 roommates and like, you know, there's no space in which you can just break. And I was just like breaking on the subway and this woman, like, you know, nobody was looking at me. Everyone's looking straight ahead. And it's like two in the morning and this woman, like two seats over me, just like pulls out her, a tissue and she doesn't even look at me and she just, she just hands it over to me. And it was this like small moment of like recognition and humanity and love, right? And I, I don't know, like little moments like that give me some sort of optimism that, um, that there is a way to love someone through a fog, right? And I think we're in this moment right now where unless we're totally intelligible to each other, and we're kind of factioning off a little bit, but unless we're totally intelligible to each other, we can't love through the fog. And act, you know, I, I don't know. I think that just because you don't always know how to love someone doesn't mean you don't love them, right? Um, and I've, I've been thinking a lot about that uh, just in our current, in the zeitgeist right now, like what it means, the erotics of being understood, right? But then also the erotics of being loved where one is also not totally understood or not totally legible. And we're a moment in a moment of high rep, of wanting representational politics and of high legibility, like the desire for legibility and intelligibility. What do you mean by that? I mean, you know, uh, we're sort of returning, I think, to a moment of identity politics, which makes sense, right? Where like a lot of people of color, for example, are, are saying things like, you know, um, uh, we need to uh, have coalition building, we need to have solidarity, um, we, we need to think about the uh, the concerns of certain communities of color, we need to think about certain communities of, of the LGBTQ community and what their concerns are, we need to privilege those concerns. And I, I think that that is something that totally makes sense to me, right? Uh, because those are the communities that are, that are the most vulnerable right now. Um, yeah, and I think like, I, I always respond to any political approach that prioritizes the most vulnerable, the poorest, the oppressed. It's like triage, right? There's a million problems in the world, but start there. We don't start with the people who are hurting the worst, who are in the biggest emergencies. That's what I like. Whenever a politician talks like that, I'm always like, yes, like that moves me anyway. I think, you know, 
But on the, and then also to say that, then I think that, you know, on the left, it's also becoming this weird kind of voyeurism, right? Where like a lot of my writer of color friends will talk about the white publishing industry and the fact that like black and brown pain in a way pays. And like, what does that mean? Like, what does that kind of trauma porn mean? And like, um, I remember reading in Hilton All's book, uh, White Girls, which was published in 2013, he says something like really startling to me, which was like, um, you know, beware the writer of color who uses the suffering of their mother as like a space of standing ovation for, you know, white audiences, something like that. I'm totally messing it up. But it was this idea that like when black and brown pain becomes like a mechanism for um, white epiphany, that that also becomes something that is really dangerous, right? I guess what I'm saying is that these conversations are a lot more complex and nuanced than I think the, than the language we have for them right now. And I understand why the language can't be really complex and nuanced right now because this, the threat is so dire. But I also am very suspect about this project of like empathy. Um, I'm not sure empathy is exactly the tool that we that is most useful for right now for having a conversation with each other. And so that's what I mean when I say like love through the fog, which is to say that empathy, I think, rests on this idea that like you can understand something about my experience um, if you listen to me enough. And if I give you the right kind of formula, the right kind of story, if I move you in the right way, right? Or that I can understand something about your experience by that same kind of mechanism. But if I think about like people of color who have been theorizing that space, like someone like Lisson, who is this amazing, you know, um, Caribbean uh, uh, writer who says something like, you know, maybe what you can't know is the space of like a kind of radical love, right? Like to, what does it mean to like extend over the space that you might never be able to empathize with the person? What does it mean to invest in someone's livelihood, which has nothing to do with your own, which maybe you can't even understand, right? Which seems unintelligible or incomprehensible to you. So that's why I'm using sort of this language of intelligibility and not intelligibility. I think a lot of times when we see people who are like, yes, we need to care about these communities because these are the issues that these communities are going through. It is a little bit like a false, um, there's something, a false intimacy, right? I think the, the the most honest thing to say is like, actually, there's a lot of things about these communities that I don't understand and can't never know, but I want to make, you know, a voice or space for them. Um, and it's not about learning, right? It's not about trying to appropriate knowledge about something you cannot actually know, but it's more about thinking, um, what are the ways to sort of give those communities power, give those communities voice, give those communities space to make their own their own knowledge production. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, I, I find it hard to know exactly what to do. Um, I feel like there needs to be a coalition building. There needs to be a lot of listening. Um, and like you say, empowering, um, of these communities and letting them sort of speak on their own terms. But I think sometimes, um, there can be like similar to like climate or whatever, just this feeling of overwhelm. Like, what do we do? Yeah. Like wanting to help, but like how, how best to help. And then like, the, this is something about being a human being that I, I sort of like wince while I laugh. But when we have best intentions, like we want to help, 
but, or we want to do something positive or say something nice to somebody that maybe they're grieving, whatever it is. And you fuck it up. Yeah. That's kind of funny in a sad way. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Or, or it can be totally like self-annihilating, right? Where it's uh, like, what did, you know, but then there's also that moment of like, why did I like, why did I think that? Why did I say that? Why? I mean, I think about this all the time when I fuck up. Right. Because I think also like, you know, we need to move away from a model of, of, um, of, of kind of righteousness, right? And, and to think more about like a, what is the model of introspection where we actually can learn from the ways that we are not, um, the ways that we feel like we're fa- we're failing as humans. Um, and and to me, like the why question or the methodological question is always really much more telling, right? Which is much, it's much more interesting to me to say like, hmm. Why did I say that? Or what was, why was this my first thought? You know, that's all critical thinking is. I always tell my students that I was like, yeah, I was like Cote Foucault for like critical thinking. It's just the art of not being governed so much. We're super governed in the way that we think we grew up in this system. We grew up under capitalism, you know, we grew up in this weird space. So, you know, how do we try and sort of undo some of those structures? You just got to think about the way that you think that's all critical thinking is. And like, yeah. And I think like, having some humility, which I think is tied to what you're saying and then having patience with one another. And, um, I don't know, like open heartedness. Um, I think sometimes, uh, I can think the worst of people too quickly Mm -hmm. or, you know, it's like you get into that negative cynical space or you're agitated for some reason and Mm. it starts to project outward um, it's easy to be that way, by the way. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot to piss people. I mean, I think there's a lot of authentic reasons to yeah. be like righteously angry, but you know, it, it can become counterproductive, I think. And, um, I don't know anyway, where, where I stand with it, it, like I think at the core is just, I, I don't know mm. a lot. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That's how I feel. Yeah. I'm just, like the older I get, I'm like, I don't really know I literally know. anything about anything. Like, yeah. I feel like a totally, yeah. like this, the scale of what I don't know is immense. Yeah. Um, like, so, but you know, if you grow, like I grew up in a space of contradictions, right? Like between ideas about citizen, between these ideas about nations, you know, with pretty complicated understandings of, of, uh, transnational feminism, pretty complicated understandings about gender and sexuality. You know, I think that if you grow up in a space of of non-identity, where identity is just, as I keep using this word, not intelligible to you, then it's almost like um, it's something helpful about that because you're kind of always making a thesis about your life and then undermining it, right? It's always like, well, I think this for three minutes. And then I'm like, well, do I think that right? Or I, <laughs> this sounds like familiar this, to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just like, I, I think that some people, um, have that, uh, and, and have that sort of methodological way of thinking that feels like, um, constantly, um, having to revisit what they believe in or what they think in or how they see themselves in the world or see, see their own positionality in the world. You know? I, I never trust any conviction I have practically. And on the one hand, I'm like, that's probably good. There's humility in that. On the other hand, I sometimes I'm like, maybe you just aren't that fucking smart and you don't know your mind well enough and you haven't mm. done the, the work yeah. to have like the principles that you should have. Like I can, I go in circles about it, but like I have a really hard time I mean, I guess that's not entirely true. There's some things I know are 
good and some things I know are bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, I see a lot of gray and I can spin for a long time and I yeah. get uncomfortable with certainty when I feel it in myself a lot of times. Uh, the quest for self is long though. And adulthood is such a fiction, you know, I think that's something I really took me by surprise. I was like, okay, thought I was going to be like, you know, here and like in my thirties and like feeling totally stable. And then I'm like, right. I don't actually want a lot of the things that like heteronormative capitalism is telling me I should want. Right. I don't really want like property. I don't really want to live in an insular space without a lot of different people in my house. I don't really know if I want like kids. Right. So all these things that I think people are sort of taught to are this sort of the prescriptive success or prescriptive ideas about happiness. I mean, even just doing the work of being like, but is that something that I actually want? Right. Like to me, those little moments can feel very freeing, right. And liberating just to think like, well, what other models of adulting are there? What other models of being a writer are there? What other models of being a woman are there out there? Um, and so I don't know, that's been definitely like, you know, academia has been like a good pathway for me to sort of think about those things. But, um, I think a lot of people are thinking that way. Yeah. Maybe more than ever. I think like the younger, like the millennial and what is it? Gen Y. I can't, yeah, I don't know. I yeah. can't keep up, but yeah. you know, people who are like 35 and under. Yeah. Um, I think there are, I think some of it's like evolutionary and like adaptive, hmm. like circumstances dictating a lot of this. Oh yeah. That's interesting. You know, yeah. some people it's like, well, if I'm not going to be able to ever afford a home, then maybe I should just get into being, you know, one of these like itinerant workers who like lives around the globe at Airbnbs right. or, you know, yeah. but you see these different sort of models springing up. Right. Um, sounds kind of cool, but some of it, sometimes I'm like, or wait, is this just like a response to like the failures, like the collective failure of, um, you know, all of us to offer like a better possibility, sustainable way of yeah, living. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, but I, I think it's, I think ultimately it's good for people to be thinking along those lines and questioning and experimenting yeah. because the notion that there's just like this one model of life or that, you know, uh, hyper-capitalism and heteronormative, um, you know, cultural structures are it yeah. is obviously untrue. Oh, when well, um, it has been forever, but of course the dominant culture wants to reproduce itself. And so we get a lot of symbolism and we get a lot of imagery and we get a lot of reward, right. From following in that, um, prescriptive model of living. And that's kind of one of the wonderful things about poetry or being a poet or being part of poetry communities is that it's, I'm not going to say it's outside capitalism because nothing is, but I think there is a way in which, you know, when you're a poet, you can walk into a room and read to four people, or you can read to a hundred people and you just don't know. Right. And so the ways in which you are understood or think about your work as important or think about audience or think about your, the speaker of a poem, it's a little bit on, um, there's something about it that's kind of wonderful because it's un it feels not as tethered to these other structures, right? There's a little bit more for me. Anyways, I think there's some freedom in that. Well, know? if anything is outside of capitalism or out near the <laughs> periphery, it's going to be poetry. Yeah. And yeah. I have, you know, as part of this like mood, I guess that I've been in recently, um, I've been thinking a lot about like what I do and have done. Uh, like I've been tied up in books one way or another for most of my adult life. Um, but in all these different modes, I've always been trying to like hustle to make a living. Hmm. So like writing books, but also having a family, 
and then having like a disabled child, you know, my, the, the responsibilities that I have don't necessarily always mesh perfectly with wanting to just like sit back and read books and of course, write yeah. books because it's a, it's a tough slope, you know, yeah. trying to, um, generate income that way, but I can't shake it. Like it's what I like. Yeah. Uh, and I think all the concerns that we were kind of voicing earlier and, uh, you talking about poetry, like maybe I'm lost in my own world. Maybe I'm an idealist, but I really do believe that books and poetry and literature are part of the medicine that our six species needs. If we are going to pull ourselves out of this, because if we don't start, um, nurturing an inner life, mm. like part of the problem is that we, people don't have like a sense of inner life and it's not as developed as it could be. Um, and some of the connectivity that we need to reestablish or establish in the first place, I'm not saying books are like some sort of uh, panacea, but they can certainly help. Yeah. And so am I making sense? Totally. I mean, I, I, I think about some of the most, you know, I just, um, did this, uh, co-lecture with one of my colleagues, Dr. Randy Gilsadler at Lafayette. And we did this work on Gwendolyn Brooks, you know, who's this amazing, uh, poet who was kind of a formalist in her early life. And then after the 1967 fist conference where she's meeting a lot of, um, uh, more political black poets, uh, kind of changes, not just her style, but also her entire, um, her entire understanding of belonging to like a community and feeling something like larger than, than just the craft or the poem itself. Um, and I think that that was very, uh, as a trajectory, cause she wrote for a long time, you know, and I think about poets who have written over long periods of time, like Yeats wrote for a long time, Brooks wrote for a long time. Um, I just think of, of that, uh, there are many, and this is what I said about like your quest for self, like, there are many transformations, right, that a writer can go through um, and many different relationships one can have with language that change over periods of time um, under spaces, obviously, of duress, right? She was there in 67. She was, like, living through this, you know, the black arts movement. She was part of that movement. But I, I think that at the end of the day, like, her um, fidelity and her love, like, she was able to do both the political and this and and the craft and the aesthetic those things are not separated right so to your point when you're saying something like oh like i think this is the this is the thing that we need this is the bomb we need for like a six species part of me is also like really hesitant about thinking about and you said bomb yeah not bomb no not me (laughs) we need a literary bomb yeah sorry no i mean i don't know i'm also like very suspect of like thinking about all art or writing or, you know, as things that are apolitically medicinal. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, this is something that's going to expand our humanity, but it's not something that's going to ask us to change our mind or change our ideology or challenge those things. For me, like, those are always kind of really intertwined. I think that's an argument I I got um, into a lot with some of my professors when I was like in, in my MFA program. Well, well, just to make sure I'm clear about what sure. you're saying, like you're saying that some literature, not, not all literature does that. Not all literature challenges us, uh, challenges us in that way. So if people, it matters what people are reading, not just that they're reading. Is that what you're saying? A little bit that, but I also think, you know, political comes from this word power. 
end. If we think about the history of lyrical poetry where there's an I and a you, so there's two people and there's a relationship and you're talking about relationality, like in some way you are kind of always talking a little bit about power. So my feeling is, okay, not all work might be this political in the same way, right? But if we expand this idea of what we think of as political to mean like shifting dynamics and relationships and however you might want to interpret that, then yeah, I kind of think like all good art, right? Should be in some way engaging, not necessarily social critiques, but engaging with understanding or, or making more complicated relationality and ideas of how we are with each other. Um, doesn't need to have an argument, but it does need to have tension and it does need to have um, complexity, right? And be working with suffering somehow. I don't know. That always helps. At least for me as a reader, <laughs> straight to the vodka. <laughs> yeah. Just how do we deal with this suffering? You know? uh, I think that's interesting. I think it's a, like like ideas of like coping, like how we're coping, right? I, I think that that hasn't really been talked about. I was reading this um, piece on compassion fatigue and activist burnout, and compassion fatigue comes from like traumatology studies that is particularly about nursing. Like nursing magazines in the '90s were like the first ones that, that came up with this term, compassion fatigue. Sure. Um, and so I think that there hasn't been enough written about the idea that, you know, we might be overly saturated or like a spectrum of emotion that we have and what is able to move us, what we're able to sort of carry. And then what happens when we become, you know, immune to things that previously, um, like, is that normalization? Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, like, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure out like, What's the language of that, of language of coping, but also the language of burnout? Well, what, what I think, too, is like this is another instance in which like patience with one another and tolerance is important because somebody might not be like as woke as you want them to be or as active as you want them to be. Like they're not canvassing or something. And it's like, you know what? They might be fried yeah. <laughs> in a really deep way. Yeah. Um, they might be dealing with things you, you can't even see. Uh, or vice versa, you know, I might be fried, you know? Yeah. And, um, so I think there's that. I also think that what you're speaking to is the need for, um, people to take, I mean, I hate, I hate the term self care, but I mean, that's kind of like, you have to, you have to take care of yourself if you're going to be any good to other people over the long haul, especially in difficult circumstances. Um, like the comparison I always make is the airplane where they're like, give yourself oxygen first yeah. before you help other people. Yeah. That makes it, you know, it carries over. I think if you, you know, if you just throw yourself into things and wear yourself out emotionally and physically and mm. otherwise, eventually you are going to crash. So if you want to be able to sustain it, you have to sort of, you know, have some sense of your limits and know when you need to pull back and like take a rest or yeah. take a break. The question for me is like, what is the oxygen? Because I don't think the oxygen is like, you know, of self, this, I think the language of self-care is like, get a massage, like, <laughs> do you get your nails <laughs> done why, or whatever. That's why I hate the term. As it, lovely it, as yeah, that sounds, yeah. right? I think the oxygen for like me and maybe for a lot of poets is like, how do you stay in love with the world? How do you stay in wonder? And so that's, to me, that's the role of the poet is to say, is to try and continue to be in love with the world, even when the world hates you or the world wants to kill, you know, people who look like you or the world, you know, how do you stay? How do space? you, how do you, how do you personally stay in love with the world? You know, I have to say, even when I'm really disappointed, it's pretty easy for me to be in love with the world. I feel like I'm 
Um, I love people that, I mean, that book is, is really, it's a, it's a love letter. I love being around people. I love community. I love having a big friend group. I love people when they're vulnerable, when they fail, when they, when they, when they don't fail, when they surprise me. Um, I, lo- I love stories. Like I love story worlds. I love reading profiles actually of, of, um, unusual or <laughs> maybe what we might think of as eccentric, uh, people. So I don't know for me, even when things are feeling really low or really down, having a one-on-one conversation with somebody, watching somebody, um, put their arm out in front of somebody on the street before crossing, um, watching something like that woman giving me a, a, a Kleenex when I was feeling low. Um, those are all these like really small moments of, of especially stranger intimacy, which is why I love New York city. Right. I love the intimacy you can have with people you don't know and will never speak to again. Right. Um, it is so trippy to think like never going to see you again, never again. Like just, yeah. we have this one second together and then we're off on our way to our uh, respective demises. Exactly. Yeah. And you, it, and because there's no privacy in New York, you can really, you know, eavesdrop and over here and, and, or, you know, watch, watch a couple fight or watch a couple make up in front of a grocery store, or, <laughs> you know, watch a, a friendship, like come together, you know, buying a pack of cigarettes while you're buying a pack of cigarettes or something. You know what I mean? Like, um, right. I, I think that that really keeps me in love with the world's people. People keep me in love with the yeah, world. Yeah. I like people too. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I can mean, it's easy to be down on people, but like, I know how fucked up I am. And like how crazy my mind is and how much, how much I fail. Mm. Like I screw up all the time. I don't want to screw up. Yeah. I think about like with my family, you know, like I'll, I'll snap at one of my kids or I'll snap at my wife or anything. Like, you know, you just have these little moments where you're like, ah, yeah. like I want to be better and you fuck it up. And I guess they fuck it up too. Like we're all human. Um, but just having that knowledge, uh, I don't know. I guess I'm just predisposed to like, want to, want to see the best in people or, um, to be patient with people as long as they're not like, like, like one of the few things I can't abide is like when somebody's being cruel to somebody else and sort of like getting off on it. Yeah. That is where I snap. Yeah. But if somebody's like confused or wrongheaded, mm. even in really bad ways, like it's not my inclination to be like, fuck you forever. Yeah. My inclination is to sort of be like, okay, well what's going on here? (laughs) You know, like, I don't know. I like people. That's all I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. So I don't know if you ever read the book, um, the art of cruelty by, uh, Maggie Nelson. Yeah. No, no. I've read a lot of Maggie and I'm trying to think, I don't think so. I, I haven't read it either. It's all my, like, I need to read a book, but I mean, it's interesting that you brought up cruelty because, I think that um, the intentionality of harm, right? Not the indifference, that's different. I think it is different, or maybe it is a kind of cruelty, but the intentionality of harm is something that um, we need to like really investigate as like, a, as like a country. I think that that's one of the things more than um, some of the other national affects or national emotional things. Uh, things that we're feeling right together, which I think ranges from disgust and shame and rage and all sorts of negative feelings. But yeah, cruelty, like what is that pleasure that people get out of um, not even just witnessing suffering, but like invoking it 
to me, that's been the wildest part of the of the past few years is hurt people, hurt people. Right. I mean, I feel like people are in, I mean, or maybe they're just like, like neurochemically psychotic and, uh, malignantly, you know, malignant narcissists and all the rest. But I think people are in a lot of pain and they don't necessarily know how to deal with it or, and this is the way it's manifesting. Yeah. On the other hand, like Brett Kavanaugh, I don't like, I don't give a fuck if he's in a lot of pain. I think he's a <laughs> cruel, you know what I mean? Like there's also a way in which to say that, like, what does it mean to like humanize the, um, what does it mean to, to sort of humanize, uh, people who pathologically, uh, hurt others. Right. Um, I don't know. I don't have like a good answer for that. I just think, you know, the idea of like hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously a lot more complicated, but as you said, that's the thing you can't tolerate like that intentional hurting of others that like, yeah, that, right. I, I think that that's interesting. Everybody has like their sort of point. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's just trying to parse it. Um, like where, where do you draw the line? Like, you know, like where are we supposed to, as a species, draw the line with people? And, um, what about forgiveness and how should that work? Mm. Like, what are the criteria by which we can authentically begin to forgive? You know, like it's not easy stuff to like navigate for me. Yeah. I remember reading this book from the nineties by bell hooks called, um, is it's, it's like, um, it's about rage, right? And she says something like, the future of black progress is going to look like a benevolent patriarchy. She kind of eerily sort of predicts the Obama administration, right? And then I remember this moment of Trayvon, Mar Martin, sorry, Trayvon Martin's mother, um, who was calling for no rioting, at, I think at the request of um, the president. And Obama says like, oh my God, she's showing, you know, uh, Trayvon Martin's mother was showing so much grace. And I remember feeling like there was something about that word grace. There was something about the expectation that black people aren't allowed to show pain or show grief or show rage, right? Which was like kind of her argument um, that was so conveniently apolitical. And so I don't know like if forgiveness is the right structure, just like I don't know if empathy is the right structure you know, I think that there's some pragmatic part of me that thinks like, yeah, we just like, we need to change policies. We need to fix, um, you know, like that, that actually is much more meaningful, right? It's like the same thing when there's like ever like a bunch of deaths from a, a shooting and people are like, we just need to pray. I'm like, no, we don't actually need no. that. That's actually not what we <laughs> We've need. Done enough of we that. don't need forgiveness. We don't need prayer. I mean, I was thinking about that amazing article that was written, um, uh, about Dylan Roof and about how, like, uh, um, uh, by Rachel, who was like, I don't really think that we need, like, people wanted to forgive him so quickly. Like, the nation was asking these black families to forgive him. Wait, so is this quickly. the South Carolina? Yeah. Isn't it bad that I like? I'm like, which shooter was this again? Like, it was Dylan Roof. He went into the church in in, uh, in uh, and like shot I think nine nine people, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like there was like this call, like there was like people calling upon these families who were grieving immediately to be like, you should forgive, you know, oh, boy. and like, so yeah, like, no, that's insane. That's, that's a way to sort of depoliticize, I think, uh, um, 
And it's also dehumanizing to the victims and to their families, right? To say that, like, we're asking you to do something that's actually not even human, which is to say you forgive this person who shot your family, right? Like, I don't know. I'm, these are just, these are so complicated. I just don't know what is the right structure for human for humans to interact with each other, especially when it comes to issues of race in this country at this moment. I just, I don't have those. Yeah, you mean neither. Answers. Me yeah. neither. That's confusing, you know? It's yeah. confusing, but... um you know, I feel like, like optimistically, hopefully we are going through all of this turmoil and like intense darkness so that we can grow. That's the optimist in me. And hopefully it's not like we're fucked. <laughs> mm. I worry about that. You know, there's a part of me that's like, well, maybe it's not some sort of like darkness before the dawn. Like maybe we're going down. And we're too fucking ignorant and lazy to do anything about it. Yeah. I can get there in my head too. Yeah. And like, I don't want to paralyze anybody listening and I don't want to paralyze myself. Like, I don't think paralysis. They, they stopped listening a while ago. They're not, <laughs> they're not here. They're for all it. people yeah. at home. Are, if you're fetal, if you're in the fetal position right now, yeah. um, you know, please know that we're with you. A hundred percent. You know, I don't know. It's, it, this is what's in front of us. This is what's in the air. Um, so I'm always happy to talk about it. Um, maybe not always, but I think it's important to talk about it. And I think it's important to address it, um, you know, in one way or another in art, because it helps people who don't necessarily have a language for a lot of this stuff um, to process it. And despair is not useful. You no. Know? Rage is useful. And even melancholy can give you that sort of reflective space. But I think a lot about what are the emotional states we're finding ourselves in. And I find despair to be the least useful. It's really. dangerous. It's just, it's about, it's like, it feels like giving up, you know, it feels like inviting whatever you think is the inevitable. And in life, if I've learned anything, nothing is that inevitable. Nothing is as inevitable as we think it is, you know, except for climate change. Cause that shit is happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like these science, these climate models. Like if we get past two degrees, yeah. like I'm telling you, I mean, we are like, I, I actually encourage people to confront, like read David Wallace Wells, read Elizabeth Colbert, read any of like the oh, yeah. climate literature, read Bill McKibben. Yeah. Um, Lacey but Johnson. Yeah, yeah, it's like, man, you get into that, you get into the weeds on that science and you look at where things are now and how, what our co patterns of consumption continue to be. Yeah. And, and you also like, I look back at like the year 2000 when, uh, you know, the Bush Gore election and how fucked up that went, you know, that was basically stolen. Yeah. Uh, things would be so much different. Like, yeah. you know, it's like, it's heartbreaking, but Anyway, we are where we are, and I think it's important to actually scare the shit out of yourself a little bit, um, as opposed to just like pretending that it's not happening. Mm. And then, uh, like a, a way that I would kind of criticize myself is like I've talked about this uh, on the show recently. Like I don't have a car anymore. I'm like one of the few people in LA who rides his bike. Nice, uh, as much wow. as possible. We we do own a car, but we have one. Yeah, and uh, I try to get around on on foot or on a bike or on public transportation because I need to feel like I'm doing something yeah. and I don't want my kids to like grow up and be like, Hey asshole, like you didn't do shit. I want right. them to have seen me do stuff. Right. Um, but all of that, you know, you can sort of like, uh, dislocate your shoulder, like patting yourself on the back. But what we really need is big we structural. Need, yeah. We yeah. need political 
change at scale. Oh yeah. Like into like, you know, recycling your plastic bottles and, uh, you know, being a vegetarian is great for the climate, but you know, ultimately what we really need is we need to get out there and vote for somebody who is going to take this seriously and we have to demand it. Yeah. Bernie. (laughs) Are you on board? Are you, are you a burn? Listen, I'm on, on board with the progressive agenda. Um, and I, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about both Warren and Sanders. Um, but what I am willing to say is that um, I think that I believe in the idea. I believe in a, that we need a political revolution, 100%. I believe the symbolism of a political revolution is highly important in the country at this time. I believe that we need momentum. We need to give people, even if things don't feel like they're realistic, we need to put that on the table so that so that like we can actually it can actually be even if it's it feels abstract it can be something that we are reaching for um i think that one of the things that i would like to see which is like you know i love aoc i think one of the things i love about her is that the grammar of her revolution doesn't look like the same kind of male um uh um, call to action, right. That feels to me, you know, I went to grad school. I I was like in school with a lot of, a lot of Marxist bros. Right. And my feeling is like, just cause you read political theory, radical political theory does not make you not an asshole. And so I'm like also thinking of this as like a feminist, like what would it look like to have a grammar of revolution that was couched in a different kind of language that was couched in a different kind of affect that like thought about anger and uh, and equality differently um and one of the things i love about aoc is that like she's angry because she is in love with the world she's angry because she does want to protect what she loves she's angry on behalf of you you know um, and if she was old enough like that, she would be like my dream candidate because she'll is, run one day, you know, there I, is some, an affection for the world. She does have this like beautiful, like kind of, um, radical warmth. Like I actually think she's the most radical in a way, you know, um, she's also so, I mean, she's 29, right? She's 30. I think she's maybe 30 now. God. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, she also She's, you can see there's real joy there, right? Like you think so? Yeah, I see her as somebody who's joyous, even when she's, and you know, and her rage and her joy are intertwined. And that's what I mean about a different grammar of like what it means to be um, uh, revolutionary, right? Yeah. Uh, is, is that, you know, re- revolutionary to me, like I have a hard time thinking about it in terms of... Um, violence, right? Like when I I think about that and I think one of the wonderful things about her is that she's not saying necessarily, or the way that she comes across is it's not like burn it down, right? That's not like her rage or to me, that's not how I interpret like the way her rage is located to me. Her rage is located in something of like, no, we're all coming up together. Like let's all come up together or like, let's at least try that. Um, and so I don't know. I have a lot of complicated feelings about like gender in this. Me too. Current I, election. I, yeah. Listen, I like Elizabeth Warren. I liked her candidacy. I know it's not perfect, but like yeah. nobody's fucking perfect. And uh, we can quibble on policy, and you can pick. You know, you can pick at it, and there could be legitimate, you know, critiques or whatever criticisms. But I can't get past the fact that 
somebody as smart as her. Oh my God. I know what you're about as to say. Vi- yeah. As vivacious. I mean, she's got so much vitality. Yeah. You, I watch on the stage, like her, like her level of brain function. She's so fucking smart. She's the smartest. Yeah. And she's like, got so much energy. And like some of these older guys, I'm like, dude, like, yeah. you know, they're old, like yeah. not ageism, like actuarially they're old. Yeah. Uh, and I just think to myself, what could possibly be, and, and I've also heard some people, all dudes, not a ton, but I, you know, here and there, Sure, she drives me crazy. She's so annoying. And I'm like, well, what's that? Maybe she does, but I'm just like, I feel like there's, there's some, like, we have to talk about gender. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously like the issue. Um, and, uh, bums me out to me. Like, yeah, that's one part of it. And obviously, you know, you can, I don't know when this is going to air, but like, um, to me, Warren, what was unforgivable was the just the you know the indigenous right. <laughs> right i mean like that was just for somebody so smart to be so dumb about like race and first nations communities that was really heartbreaking i think for a lot of people yeah um but also you know not any less honestly heartbreaking than when sanders voted you know down i think it was like the brady bill for to to, to not have a 12 hour waiting period for guns right like so i i don't know i mean politicians are going to break your heart we should not put so much yeah uh so much um stock in them right as as figureheads but i think symbolically the progressive uh candidates are really important in this moment and i'm just like yes what and then when i see the new york times or the post just be so irresponsible in their coverage particularly of bernie i have to say it does really push me (laughs) to be to to be more um like to want to go out and canvas more i mean there is a way in which i'm like oh man like the democrats they just are they don't know the country they just don't know. They don't actually know the people they're trying to represent. And and their like weird way that they're trying to sabotage. And to me, it looks like so like egregious, right? The way that they're trying to sabotage, particularly the Sanders campaign, is just absolutely like immoral. The more they do that, the more people are gonna get behind him. And and for them, yeah. And especially like it's not the only dichotomy. No. And there's a million different ways to break down the electorate but i really feel like this primary electorate and maybe this general election too it's really the young versus the old Hmm. that to me feels most pronounced that's what i I, you know because if you just look like across demographics across gender yeah like young people support a progressive agenda right and older people tend to support like centrism or neoliberal the way things have been you know or whatever it is and i think that's the argument in large part that we're having. It's not the whole argument, but it feels central. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I think for a lot of older people, I'm thinking people like maybe like at the age of of being grandparents right now, you know, socialism to them sound, even if they don't understand it, the way that, that way that Bernie is sort of enacting that word feels terrifying to them. Right. Um, it's just a different era. The language, like the idea of it or the language of it, like, and, and, and that is, you know, that's their own sort of prerogative, but that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it generationally, even though I'm sure there's, I'm sure that that's there. Um, cause I, I do know like a lot of older people who yeah, are they, they, listen, by you can't paint with too broad of a brush, but yeah. like, I think if you look at the numbers, you know, if you look at the polling, data in in general that's the way things are divided yeah my dad's 79 he loves warren like he's just like all for it you know yeah 
Um, but I think he really wants a woman to be president also, which I kind of love about him. Yeah, I do too. I I do too. I feel like, um, I, I I felt like this in 2016. I think I felt like this for a while. Like men have had their shot and they fucked things up. Like, let's give a woman a try. Let's see how it goes. And like, I think too, we've never really in my lifetime and I, I don't think in your lifetime either, we've never tried a truly progressive president. Yeah. It's like the only thing we haven't tried. We've tried everything else, you know, yeah. like Christian conservative, hardcore doctrinaire conservative, middle of the road, liberal, third way, blah, 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 like Christian liberal. Like, yeah. let's try uh, a prog- like a progress, like a God, you know, honest to God progressive and see how it goes. Yeah. To me, I think like it really matters less that like... um it's not like I'm like, oh, I want any woman to be president. Like, I can't stand Klobuchar. <laughs> but, like, to me, I'm like, is the reason she's being more dismissed related to gender? And, of course, I think that. I think yeah. she's, you know, she's being subjected to a lot of misogynistic um, commentary. Um, and a lot of people who unconsciously think that about her. Or, like you said, your friends are like, oh, she drives me crazy or, like, are bothered by her. And that, in that way, I feel very protective of her as a candidate where I'm just like, no. I mean, there's reasons to disagree with her. Here are the ways that, like, she's sometimes, like, such a white lady, you know? But on the other hand, like, the arguments, like, against her feel like they're leveled at her affect not so much her policies, right? Which are pretty in-depth, actually. But more about, like, oh, I just don't like the way she presents herself. So what would it look like for a a, a woman candidate or a candidate who identifies as a woman to be um, a figure of authority, right? Like, what could that possibly look like in this country? I think about that a lot. And, yeah. you know, and I, I think, to be real, I'm not saying this is right, but I think it's real. And I think it applies to both genders, not equally, but it does apply. We live in a visual, like we're televised. Mm-hmm. You got to give good television yeah. to get elected. And typically if there's an election, the candidate that gives better television wins. Like Reagan is a fucking actor. Yeah. Donald Trump, reality TV star. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? George W. Bush, he's the one I want to have a beer with. Obama, like I mean, as telegenic yeah, as it gets, for sure, for like sure. that brilliant smile and like the whole thing. Like he's, his you know, voice too. And his voice. Yeah. And so, Likewise with female candidates, um, I have been thinking like, did you ever see Iron Lady, the movie about that Margaret Thatcher? Thatcher? Yeah, a while ago. I don't and it was like, the, it's the part of it where she uh, retrains her voice right. to sound less shrill and like more like authoritative and deeper yes. and like, you know, Yeah. and I'm like, God, like maybe there's some aspect of Elizabeth Warren's delivery or tone of voice that's like vibrating, the you know, like uh, vibrating the wrong way or maybe... You know, we need AOC to be, you know, 35 or whatever the age is, 40, 35, actually, 35, yeah. like, yeah. you know, cause she's gorgeous she and is. like super telegenic and like super great speaker, you know, maybe that, is, maybe that's it, you know? And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying like, I'm wondering the same thing. Like, how is this going to look? When are we eventually, when are we ever going to get to the place where it's like, okay, yeah. Yeah. Like, this is okay to do. This is making me feel okay. <laughs> Shouldn't be this hard. But, but I mean, yeah, that's also just like ageism, right? Like, we're like, uh, Warren to me feels very presidential, you know? Yeah, me too. I mean, Sanders and Warren both feel really presidential, but. Bernie's got a great voice. Uh, Bernie's got a great voice. He's just got the right rage. Like, I just love when he's like, you know, that is insane. Like, his <laughs> outrage is so pleasurable because it is insane, right? 
And Warren has this way. I'm a professor, so like I actually really respond well to the professorial, you know, um, call to action where she'll just be like, "Listen," or like, "Look, comma." Like I know that um, rhetorical sort of move, right? And I think that she it has a way of ga- gathering your attention or getting the attention. But like, you know, I hear what you say about the televisual and like how we are, and we have to have somebody who's like a, a good figurehead or just seems that way. Uh, I mean, yeah, but I think I don't know. I just I hope the lesson we've learned is that good television does not i hope we're learning that lesson doesn't always mean like good outcomes it doesn't ever mean (laughs) you know it doesn't mean like watchability is 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 also says something about the audience right like like i hope we're disgusted with ourselves enough to say okay we like people and i'm not me obviously not me because i fuck trump but like you know people liked to watch Trump. They found him engaging. They found him in, like watchable on the screen. I'm hoping we learn the lesson, although maybe that's so optimistic. This is why people need to get away from their TVs and read. And, like, or just be sick of it, really, to be like oversaturated by like that version of who we are, who we think we are, you know, like I hope we're disgusted. Well, yeah. Or maybe you can like, eventually you get to a point where like you're, you can actually feel the toxicity of it all and you just have enough. Aren't these people fucking tired also? Like, I mean, the rage and the paranoia. And I the- mean, no, I just think like to support Trump is to, it must be exhausting because like it has to be because like every time you turn on the TV and he does something insane, which is every day, every minute of the day, you know, and you might have to defend yourself to your kid or to your coworker or whatever. Like, my God, like either you're just be, you're, either you're just so entrenched that you're doubling down because you don't want to look you're like watching you, Fox News. You don't want to look. Yeah. Like, yeah, of course. Yeah, you're right. I don't know. I they, don't know. they get a sanitized, like scrubbed version sanitized. of it. I don't know. I mean, that's, the, that's you're, yeah, you're going to. Edit this all out. I'm just like you're getting me to the point of yeah. It's hard. To, it's hard to parse it all, but yeah. You know, I again, I think your your book um, felt like some kind of tonic to me because it gave um, I don't know in in its way it gave voice to a lot of these concerns, and it was just like heartening to be like, oh, okay, somebody else is working through this stuff too. Um, it's always, and messily, right? Yeah. Well, but I mean, like beautifully oh, messily. So it's nice yeah. to find some solace in that. And I need it, frankly, like, and I like to get it in poetry and I like to get it in, um, you know, literature, longer book, you know, memoir, novel, whatever, um, versus getting it. Like I'm, I'm finding the internet offering me less and less solace, Yeah, you know, and certainly television, like not offering me hardly any outside of maybe like parody, you know, like sometimes comedy can be good, but, um, I, I, I think I need to, you know, I think I'm, what I'm trying to do too is to try to formulate like a path and like a plan of action, you know, uh, not huh, get, interesting. Not, not getting caught in despair, but like trying to come up with a mode of living and a way of being in the world that I feel good about. And that, um, is proactive instead of like paralyzed. Can I make a suggestion? Yeah, please. I think it's as important as riding your bike around and recycling and because like, obviously we need to do all those things or we need to think more critically about, you know, our models, our modes of consumption. But I think it's really important, equally important for people to do things like make dinner for someone they love, hold somebody's hand. You sure you want me to cook? Play. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, like play, play with their kid. Go see a, you know, stand in front of a painting. You know, I don't, I think we're sort of in this mode where we're like, oh, what is indulgent and what is absolutely necessary? But those are really things that expand our humanity. They keep us from feeling one dimensional. They keep us from feeling um, that like everything is uh, inevitable, right? They keep possibility in our heads. Yeah. Right? Like even if you have, and I make dinner for, I love making dinner for people. And, and in New York, it's kind of rare because nobody's apartment is nice. And like, <laughs> you know, the kitchens are always like, you know, my oven has like linens in it, you know, like, right. but I find that that really, because people need it. People really need right now all the love that you can give them because people are hurting so much. And so those small little things being like, or taking a photo of a poem and sending it to someone being like, hey, this reminded me of you, right? I do actually think that those small ways of of sort of engaging in the world are like as important as all the other kinds of political actions. And they're highly feminized, right? I think that historically that kind of care has been thought of as like the work, woman's work. But actually, like, that needs to be everybody's, and work is not even maybe the right way, but that needs to be everybody's um, call to action. That is a way of being political. That is a way of loving people. Um, getting people who are able to, like, organize, get people in the room, and I don't even mean in the room just to make some sort of political thing possible. I mean, getting people in the room, like, to feed people, right? To ask them how their day was. That is as important. I think that's central. Okay, I'm going to learn how to cook. It was, doesn't I, have to just be cooking. I, I was you, thinking you that, see but what I'm saying. I have I have like this recurring fantasy of having like a party. I always think of like having a taco truck here. <laughs> that way, I can outsource the cooking, and everyone's yeah. everyone's happy with the food. Yeah. The more important point is just like getting people I know in LA all over here. Yes. To one place, like writerly people, like having like a. I also have this like fantasy bowling league. Where I we're gonna, it. yeah, like writers. <laughs> I, th- I think about this kind of stuff a lot, and then just also I think about having like a couple of people over, or doing some sort of like, um, you know how you have friends in different mm. pockets. Yeah. What if we put these this combination together? Yeah. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Of like, course. Yeah. Maybe that would get interesting, and then like making like I was just thinking as you were talking, I was like, I can make pasta. <laughs> Everybody likes pasta. Everybody. You can't go wrong. Hard to fuck it up. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Pasta, garlic know. bread, yeah. little salad. You know, equal parts introspection and community. Because I think, like, if you go t- too much, you know, you, you need you need both. I always feel like that a little bit. Like, when I'm, like, poets are so about the self. It's like, self, self, what am I feeling? What am I thinking? How am I communicating it? Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you, you really, poets are also really good at being like, hey, do you want to go out for a drink? Oh, you're sad today? I'll meet you here. Or like, um, I, uh, I, I got this book for you cause I thought maybe you would, you would need it. Like poets are actually good at, I think community building and, and coming and togetherness and being together with contradictions, right? Poets should be the biggest advocate of people with contradictions because that's the central sort of space of, to me, good writing. None is otherwise, you know, maybe you'd be an essayist, <laughs> right? Like this idea that like, um, we can all be more than one thing and we are problematically and often those things are in contention with each other and often ourselves are in contention with ourselves and with the people outside of ourselves. But like, how do you all stay in a room together? You know, and it's not some false unity or some bullshit idea about like, we just need to come together because I think that that's an annoying thing to say, but like, 
how do we rhythmically, like if we think about tension, I'm using the language of music here, right? Like how do we like be, get into a rhythm together? How do we have chemistry with each other? How do we have banter with each other? How do we sort of love each other through that fog? You know? Right. Food is a good vehicle. That's why I keep bringing it up. Yeah. yeah. Feed people. Yeah. Feed people. Everyone Take care of people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, I can invite them over and like make them less lonely. Yeah. Yeah. I you know, think. we're all too, we're all too closed off. I agree. That's, We're all looking again, at our phones. <laughs> I love, that's why I love living in New York, you know? Because you can do that stuff. Yeah. I'm like, I got a butcher, you know? I got, I've always wanted to have a butcher and now I have one. You got yeah. one. I mean, you, my grandfather, Frank. my grandfather, my grandfather was a butcher named Frank. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. Wow. Maybe that's like required. I don't know. But that's I right. love that. I love that to me. That feels like, you know, you got the person, you know, at the post office and you get the butcher and like i think there's this myth about new york that it's all anonymous and like you know there's no intimacy and it's whatever but it's really really about neighborhoods and about um what part of new york do you live in i live in the village oh you do yeah okay yeah i'm in a super um can i say this a kind of a, a precarious housing situation but that has been going on for five years um through like a friend so i feel like i have this very um like once in a lifetime kind of like a space or opportunity um through a friend uh like a rent control type thing yes let's say that okay. yes <laughs> yes um but like if once i lose this apartment it's gonna be yeah it's gonna be it's tragic gonna be, it's gonna be tragic but it's also just gonna be such a wake-up call everybody comes to my you know it's not like an especially nice apartment it's just that the location is really good but everyone who comes by is like dude like you are in for a rude awakening when you have to actually go look for an apartment uh-huh. in New York, not through friends networks, right. but poets have a lot of friends. So that's right. Cause yeah. you're there for people. Well, yeah. You yeah. try to be, we're good at parties. Okay. We're excellent at parties. I, I, it's good to be good at parties. Yeah. Yeah. There's a ratio of fiction writers to poets at a party that I think is really useful. Too many poets and it'll just be a disaster, but like too many fiction writers and there's just so much gravitas in the room, you know, too much, too much gravitas. You know what's the so worst? Serious. What? A party with lots of podcasters. Oh my god! Nothing worse. <laughs> I haven't actually been to that party. It's a complete fucking nightmare. Tell me, tell me. Actually, I think you're actually being earnest and like right now. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this is a bit. I think you're actually telling me about some trauma you went through. I did. Yeah, I can't even talk about it. Okay. Um, but it's really great to meet you. So nice to meet you. Thank you so much. This yeah. is fun. Congrats on your book. And yeah. uh, are you working on anything else? You got another collection in the works, or? Yeah, I'm always writing poetry. I'm actually working right now on this ugh, novel which, you know, it's like, I'm, I don't have a ton of experience with writing prose, but it's fun. And it's about, um, two women artists who, uh, one who's from Sicily, who's video artist, one who is a little bit based on me, um, who live in New York and one of their friends passes and they leave New York to go to Palermo and to some of the smaller islands in Sicily. My grandfather, Frank, the butcher was from Palermo or was from Sicily. Really? Yeah. Wow. So I've been to Sicily a lot. I go there cause my closest friend is from there. It's a little bit about our friendship oh, okay, on yeah. the book. And so, uh, yeah, it's kind of what it means to also think about global South politics in a way that's not just in the United States, but how does that sort of mobilize to these other contexts? Right. Cause I think we think about, you know, the one thing I'll say about a lot of like American discourse along, around race is that we we are thinking about it in a really specific way that is, of course, like tied to American history, right? But I think one of the things that has been interesting for me as just being a child of the Indian Ocean diaspora is that like the way that I think about like race and difference and and uh, colonization or whatever is constantly like changing and and 
feels more um, complicated. It changes in these different paradigms. So like when I talk to my friend from Sicily, she's talking about what it means to be Sicilian and the North-South politics of Italy. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I think that... Sicilians are like the... Like we're sort of like the... uh forgotten italians right like it's got sort of like a like the northern people think that sicilians are oh it's racist it's hugely racist yeah Yeah, from what i understand yeah so it's a little bit about like what it means to be like a brown american in sicily talking with my friend who's sicilian and like being an outsider in that space and not understand not understanding things yeah but it's also just i love palermo i love that city Hmm. yeah i gotta go i've never been you gotta go it's just got something really um something about the light there yeah it's really beautiful yeah yeah okay well now you're thank so, you so much i'm gonna ha- have dinner parties and i'm gonna go to sicily yeah changing my life <laughs> that's the bougiest conversation you've ever had <laughs> all you need to do is go to sicily <laughs> and eat and yeah and have dinner parties and get that taco truck solve that there we go Solve that climate anxiety yeah. uh well thanks again for coming over and thank best you. best of luck to you thank you so much All right, guys, that is Megan Fernandez. Her poetry collection is called Good Boys, and it is available from Tin House Books. You can find Megan online at MeganFernandez.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her uh, handle on Twitter is at MFernandezPoet. Megan Fernandez, the book, once again, is called Good Boys. Go get your copy read some poetry thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview if you would like to support this program tip your server you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod if you would like to write to me the address is letters at other PPL.com Don't forget about the Other People app. This program has its own official app. It's free. Everything's free. All 600 and whatever episodes are free. The the, uh, app is free. It's all there for you. Next week on the... uh, Or not next week, but Wednesday on the the, uh, podcast, I have Emily Nemens the editor-in-chief of the Paris Review and the author of a novel called The Cactus League. Very fascinating uh, conversation with her that I think you're going to enjoy, so stay tuned. That's coming up this Wednesday. It's the Wednesday after Super Tuesday. Super Wednesday. So let's get back to uh, Megan Fernandez and uh, have her read the uh, title poem of her collection. It's called Good Boys. The collection is called Good Boys, and this poem is called Good Boys. Here she is one more time, folks, to close it out. This is Megan Fernandez reading a poem called Good Boys. Okay? Here's Megan. Once in a car, a good boy shook me hard. If you like it that way in bed, then why are you? The tiny bruises on my arms where his prints pressed into my pink sleeves rose to the surface like rattles, like requests, 
They thrived there for a week until they settled into a wet blackness. A bruise can sweeten your blood, can bloom the sweetness into you. A bruise can bloom rabbits like pines. Once in a car, everything between us started growing, and then I was not in the car or the state or the East Coast anymore. I was at the summit of a prayer, reeling from an animal mouth, my tongue an unseeable act, because here is the truth. Even the good boys want to shake you down, want to come in your mouth and hair, want to quake above you, if only for a moment. Come home, come home, another good boy says. I would never shake you. I would never do anything to your body.